Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil & Gas Council. Today we are joined by Brandon O'Gara, CFO of Echo Energy, a private minerals and royalties company that is focused on the Midcon and Permian Basin. Throughout the episode, Brandon talks about the in-house approach that Echo has used to scale up the ground game in order to build a material portfolio that is attractive to their institutional investors. He also talks about the strategic benefits of having patient capital, as he feels minerals should never be on the shot clock. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Brandon has to say. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. No problem. I appreciate it, Tim. It's an odd time and I'm excited to be here. So thank you for having me on. For sure. So would love to start with the background. Uh, I think what's unique about the mineral space is you have so many different avenues um, when you look back and reverse engineer the management teams of the leading royalty companies in the space right now, some come from land, real estate, finance. You come from the finance route. So building up to that, just where you grew up, where you went to school, kind of your influences, was family in finance, were they in oil and gas, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, uh, definitely seen a lot of different people in the mineral space and it's exciting for all of us. I think for me personally, it's it's an interesting route, uh, probably a little unique for a lot of people that are involved in the oil and gas space, especially in, um, in Oklahoma City and Texas today. Uh, so I grew up on Long Island, for those that don't know, uh, about an hour east of New York City in, in a county called Suffolk County. So from there, I went to uh, the University of Pennsylvania, undergrad Wharton, uh, graduated there in 2008 and continued to focus on finance-related courses. I ended up at Wexford Capital one or two years after I graduated college. And from there, we're, we're, was really just thrust into, into the energy space. Wexford, for, for those that don't know, is heavily focused in, in the oil and gas space. I was lucky enough to be one of the early energy uh, analysts for them when I got there and was able to focus on all different sorts of the energy sector from, uh, you name it, EMPs, service companies, MLPs, refiners, midstreams. Uh, so it was really an invaluable time for me as I, as I was kind of building my career to learn the entire energy structure of, of how the world works. No, that's great. And, and by the way, I, I don't know if we've kind of touched upon this in our offline conversations. I grew up in Long Island as well, in Suffolk County, nonetheless. So it's a super yep. small world. I think I remember from your original phone call, uh, 631 area code. Uh, and, uh, I have a 561 area code now, which is Florida. Uh, but I, uh, my parents lived there for four years while, while I was in college, but I am, uh, I'm a Long Island guy, so we got that in common. Yeah, and, and I hear you, you know, the, the natural gravity is to go to a school, you know, Northeast school, high caliber, like a UPenn, a Harvard. I remember I ended up going to Rice, which is how I got to Houston, but I, and I played golf, so you played tennis, so we're very similar in that regard, I guess, similar worlds, tennis and golf, and I looked at Princeton and I ended up picking Rice instead, but that's funny. You know, it's interesting in Long Island, there is zero exposure to oil and gas. So you kind of just back into it through, through school and just job opportunities, right? That's how I got into it. Yeah, I think that's hitting the nail on the head there for me. It's, if you think about it, it's, it's funny. It's not only did I make my way into energy somehow and work at, at Wexford for a bit, but uh, I found my way to Oklahoma City in 2015. So 
you, uh, you grew up on Long Island, you worked at Energy, uh, you end up marrying a girl from Philly, and then you tell her you're moving to Oklahoma City. It's not the traditional Long Island path, that's for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So fast forward. So February 15, you guys launched the Echo Energy Story. You're in OKC. You know, the year before that, and we can just touch upon it briefly, Viper goes public. And I believe Prairie Sky was just before that up in Canada. You know, that was interesting for yep. me. My first job, you know, just talking about our years at university, I was brokering small mineral, minerals packages for a company called PLS. They did lower end divestment work in the market. Yep. So I understood the mineral space and, and the dynamics of it, but very much kind of pinned it as a mom and pop shop type game, right? And when I saw Prairie Sky and Viper go public, that got my attention. That's what got oil and gas canceled focus on the mineral space. And we started doing panels of the events and, you know, fast forward to today. And it's, it's very much a big focus for us, i.e. we're doing a podcast on it. But I'm, I'm just curious, because that was a new concept. You were involved in that briefly and then clearly saw value in the mineral space to then go launch Echo. So I love kind of the, to get in your headspace in the 2013 to 15 range, going from analyst to then a principal running a company. I think I think you're making really good points there, Tim. It's a it's a great observation and a great question. Prairie Sky is I think something that people forget a lot about. Uh, I remember going to the Prairie Sky uh, IPO lunch before Viper was launched, uh, just to learn more about the mineral space before uh, we made our move at at Wexford with Diamondback and Viper and, and progressing there. Uh, the Prairie Sky guys were very very impressive. A little bit different structure in Canada than it is in the U.S., but nonetheless, still cash flow forever without any cost, which is the beauty of minerals, as, as a lot of people listening probably do know. But from the, from the Viper story, I think the two quick points I'll touch on there is a unique opportunity with Viper, one big, one big asset, uh, one big ranch to, to kick the IPO off, which was an unrealistic opportunity for a lot of other people. Uh, I think that there was value seen there uh, with, with the Wexford investment crew. Uh, and, then, and then a lot of what we went through early on at Wexford is what you were just talking about. It's, it was education and of uh, the investment community and education of really just everyone involved with minerals, investment community, equity research teams, investment banks on what, on what the value of minerals were. Um, and I think it's interesting because I, I think the industry is way further along than it was back in 2014, 15. But I think you could still say that we have some of the same issues today. Uh, if we fast forward five years to, to what people understand about minerals and what they don't. I think we get a lot of the same questions about, do you have costs? Uh, how do you forecast them? What, what is it actually that you're getting when you buy it? Do you own it forever? A lot of the questions that you had to explain back when, when Viper was going public are still relevant today, albeit on a much bigger scale with a much bigger investment community. Yeah, on the education piece, let, let's kind of transition into Echo now because you guys raise money from large institutional investors and love a little more color on that. But what was that process like? Because you very much had to probably leverage the learnings and the questions that you saw on a regular basis through the, the Viper Wexford stage of your career to, to then do the same thing on the fundraising front for Echo, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's a good point. And I think if you think about like the the investor conferences, and I think you mentioned this before, which is which is also something I think is worth touching on the fact that back in 2014 and 15, there were no people attending any conferences. And, and now today, you mentioned it, which is funny is we've got a podcast going on right now, which is which is awesome. And then we also have 
royalty specific only conferences, right? You guys have your royalty conference that has been going on for multiple years. And then we have, we have TPH as their conference credit. Swiss has done private conferences. We have the, the Mark conference, which is purely a mineral conference. So it's, it's exciting for the space to think that there are, there is enough interest for specific conferences dedicated to minerals and royalties, which is, which is great. And if you fast forward that to kind of your question on, on echo in February, 2015, when I, when I first got to Oklahoma city, um, it really wasn't at that point yet. It was, it was something that we had to prove as a management team uh, while we, while we raised money. Uh, we, you hit it, you hit it correctly on, on kind of a little bit of the background echo story. We have raised money from, a lot of different sources. Uh, we've been able to raise money from high net worth family offices, specific hedge funds, and different pension funds. Um, we've really prided ourselves on connecting with the right capital partners over over the course of our life cycle of almost six years now, which is which is crazy. We've probably raised money from from over 20 different people on the mineral space, which which is exciting and um, and a, a nice kind of sign of success for us of what we've been able to accomplish. Yeah, no, that that's great. And you know, at this time too, private equity starting to enter the space. Did you do the dance with them, or did you guys fundamentally just think this is not the right right cost of capital for backing a mineral story? Any insights there? Yeah, um, we we were never out there specifically looking for private equity. We thought there were better matches for what the mineral asset class was, being a long term asset that you own forever. That you really don't have to worry about on a, on a short time period. I think from our standpoint, it doesn't feel like minerals deserve to be on a shot clock, I think is the simplest way that I could put it. And, and a lot of the private equity firms out there are on that five to seven year time horizon. And from our perspective, when we were building, building the company up, we didn't think it made sense for us to be on the shot clock if we could avoid it. So we, we searched for uh, alternate sources of capital and lucky enough for us, we were, we were able to be successful. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. We did an episode with Darren Geiger over at Cornerstone. So they've been at it since 2004. So you look at that, That's there aren't too many that have been in the business for 15, 16 years going into two, three decades. There's a handful in Midland, but what was interesting is how they really took the multi-decade commodity price cycle and industry cycle dynamics into play. They hedged at the right time to lock in top pricing. They sold at the right times. And when you have that multi-decade horizon, you can approach the business in a way different, uh, a totally different way. And it, it makes sense. And so matching the capital for that is definitely, definitely logical. Uh, can you go on a little bit more about, you know, in the beginning days? So you said you kind of had to earn the right uh, as you fundraise. What, what was the, the strategy, you know, the base and focus? Was it larger packages? Was it ground game? Was it, you know, leveraging partnerships on the ground or line up site partnerships with EMPs? You know, we've seen with larger players like yourself, we've seen override carve outs. We've seen, you know, partnerships like, like the Franco Nevada Continental deal. 
we, we've seen, you know, Long Point does a bit of everything, right? They do small and large on the ground. Where, where do you guys fit in, in in that spectrum? I think for us, we might be uh, a little bit unique in this sense. And just backing up a little bit for Echo in general, the, the beginning time when I, when I got there in February 2015, the, the overarching theme that we've tried to utilize there is a, a constant culture of innovation and doing things differently and, and looking for ways to be better. Like you said, the mineral game has been around for a long time and, and there have been guys doing it for longer than me on this phone uh, and, and longer than what we did at Viper at Wexford as well. But there always felt like there were ways to, to do things better. And that's kind of the, the message that we drove home at Echo when, when I first got there. There was only 12, 15 people really there when I started. And that has grown significantly to, to where we are today. But the, the prove it concept to, and the way we got started was some of the high net worth offices. No one really thought that the aggregation strategy of uh, organic buying, I'll call it, on the ground was capable of scaling. Um, I think some of the private guys knew it was possible, but the capital markets and, and bigger investors, uh, even high net worth guys who maybe weren't specific to oil and gas or specific to energy, were rightfully skeptical of the ability to buy and uh, aggregate small tranches of minerals. So for us, we had to start doing it piece by piece, investor by investor, and showing the successful acquisition ground game machine that we were able to create to put to put pieces together. So we did start in the scoop where Echo was the most comfortable some, from some legacy assets that we had there um, and started going piece by piece, three acres, four acres, five acres on the ground, uh, nonstop, really just burning through as many different smaller deals as we could. O- Oklahoma is a, is a very chopped up state um, and chopped up interest versus something like the Permian. So it gave us the opportunity to to kind of prove what we had, um, and then and then run that machine over and over and over again. You know, the one thing. So there's there's definitely a value arbitrage if you buy smaller there, uh, and then if you aggregate into packages, it has a greater value altogether. But then there's the the cost burn of title due diligence and just the efforts of being on the ground and, and doing all that. How do you guys? kind of find the balance between the two to, to make sure it's worthwhile, especially the scale of capital you're trying to put forward. Yeah. From our standpoint, I'll run through a couple of the, the key differentiators for us because I, I think it's an important concept. And for us, we've always done things with 100% in-house strategy. So for a lot of the buyers out there, and you hit on it a little bit before, everyone's got their own, their own way of doing things, whether it be through intermediaries on the ground or buying bigger packages. But Echo has always been 100% in-house. Everyone's under one roof strategy. So we've got our own buying team. We've got our own title team. We've got our own accounting team. We've got our own reservoir team, geology team, finance team. Uh, And a lot of other companies have a lot of the same things there. But from a standpoint of, I'll I'll call it the beginning of the process and the end of the process, gets lost a little bit in a lot of the ways that minerals get bought in the world today where we have uh, our own specific acquisition agents in-house. Uh, and we also have our own title team in-house. So from an incentive structure, um, you really want to have the guys under the Echo roof buying minerals for you. I think it aligns incentives and people are really working on the same team as opposed to kind of a broker or someone else just doing their day job. And then on the back end, it's something similar in our mind where why we, we don't think it makes sense necessarily to, to broker out title because those are the guys that are making sure that you own the asset that you're paying money for. So 
title defects are, are something that we were very cautious of going on in, in early into the buying cycle for us. And we have been very proud of our team to be able to identify possible title defects before money goes out the door. And we're proud to say that we've, we've never had really any issues with that. And actually, we've probably found ways to increase our acreage counts because of the diligence of our team in-house. What about portfolio, active portfolio management? And uh, you know, I had a really interesting episode with Robert Hefner, and he has a, an IP on a technology platform he's built in-house. And he just, specifically, he's an Oklahoma guy. And so you guys have a big portfolio in Oklahoma. Just the complexity and, and knowing how to go in and you can actually find a lot of those defects up front. Is that something you guys feel that that's been a strength? Because it's not just buying at the right cost basis, right? It is very much making sure you continue to get that money. Um, and there's all sorts of loopholes that are in place for money to slip through the cracks over time. Two different situations there. One being uh, the technology aspect of it is definitely a big part of the story uh, today, it's becoming a bigger piece of oil and gas in general. Uh, you hear about it with every vertical of the energy chain about people trying to manage data better, uh, people trying to drill more efficient wells, people trying to make sure they can valuate assets more effectively. But for us, I think going back to innovative enough to get a jump on technology early. So a big part of our advantages also came from uh, building our own proprietary online platform to access mineral owners more frequently and faster. Uh, so we were doing that in 2015, which which gave us a, an advantage on on some of the competitors, which I think a lot of people are focused on now as far as trying to utilize technology. But that definitely helped us early on as a, as a platform we still use today. And on the on the backside of that, with your question on active management, 100 uh, percent land admin and accounting at our shop are are fully functional um, in depth teams uh, reviewing and analyzing decimal interest and ownership percentages. Uh, every every single month, every single day, and actively moving wells back and forth between what operators think they own and what we think we own. Um, the amount of money that we've been able to generate from that and, and additional cash flow, as opposed to someone who is a passive mineral owner, um, is is consequential, especially for for the caliber of investors that that we're looking to uh, invest with, and for how we how we hold ourselves accountable for for what we expect in a portfolio that we're building. Yeah, you know, I think one of the big questions out there is should the pension type investors of the world buy direct? You, know, you hear a lot of private equity folks that have portfolios that are trying to exit. You know, they say, oh, we got this great turnkey asset. There's no cost. It's easy to manage. You just get the right systems in place. You can even do it third party. It doesn't run itself, but it, you know, a lot of the hard work is done up front, aggregating it all and cleaning it up. But then, you know, you have, um, when I had the, the episode with Will Collin at Long Point, he just, you know, he said the, the portfolio management is so crucial uh, and you, you have to be a sophisticated oil and gas team to understand how to do that, where to look, et cetera. And so, you know, you guys are an example of, I think it's, it's a more preferential route for a pension to go direct through a team versus putting it on their balance sheet. Cause I, that's just one of the seesaw arguments I hear all the time. Do you, do you think pensions will ultimately, or those types of investors, buy it direct? I mean, we just saw the, for instance, the, the Sixth Street Partners uh, override package with Ontario, right? Yep. Do you foresee more deals like that where an institutional investor buys it direct or you think it's through a vehicle? 
I think it would be interesting to see if institutional investors like pensions have the ability and time and management to be able to go direct. I think, I think something like what Will said um, and, and kind of the way Echo operates, and I think you hear some of the same commentary from the public guys, is the time and effort that goes into being able to manage um, an asset like this, the way we operate it is, is a true differentiating factor. So for us, I think the active management and direct investment into a team like ours or a different company makes a lot of sense, but I'm not sure a pension themselves are going to have the ability and sophistication to, to go manage a, a, a large mineral asset. But I do think there's room for direct investment into um, a situation like we are at Echo. And obviously that's how we're set up and, and I'm going to be the most comfortable with that. But from our standpoint, I think it makes the most sense and gets the most value to the investors at the pension fund, which at the end of the day is everybody's main goal. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Um, so are you guys, for the most part, purely ground game focused? Uh, do you buy larger packages? Are you looking at considering large carve outs and things of that nature? Uh, we always consider it, but um, we've bought we've bought deal bigger deals, kind of upwards of twenty thirty million dollars. Uh, but our main strategy is is on the ground. Uh, we think we generate the most value that way. Uh, we think we can kind of differentiate ourselves from the market as as far as getting the best price that way. And it's been it's been something that we haven't changed since day one of when we started buying minerals. I think yes, Echo is always open for business when it comes to other packages that make their way onto the market. And I think that might start shifting as time goes on, as some of the, the owners of the assets in the, in the middle tiers start trying to exit based off of the way they were set up. Um, but for now, uh, Echo is always actively using our in-house acquisitions team and our ground game to attack the market at the, at the smallest levels to, um, to differentiate. I think it's been an important piece for us, along with the fact that we've only ever bought mineral interests. And I know it's a little bit different than your question, but it just made me think of it while, while I was talking. We are a pure play, uh, true, true pure play mineral interest company. We've got no overrides, no NPRIs, no debt severances, no exposure to federal lands. I think we've <laughs> probably uh, frustrated some people out there that we were buying from, but when it comes to our title and the interest that we want to own, um, that's been something we've been really focused on from day one is to be truly 100% pure fee mineral interest in, and a truly clean portfolio. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Do you think, I mean, you have a finance background and, and have been involved in the fundraising of Echo. Do you think there's a window in time to really make a splash and get capital in minerals, forget the oil price war and, and all the dynamics for the industry, but just at a broader level, the interest rates being so low in the market, right? Bonds and everything, this is an alternative to that. And so capital that's out there that's looking for yield is looking for a home. As the market shifts at a global level, do you foresee less money coming in over time or do you just think 
the the returns are really attractive and that it'll continue to come over time. Look, I mean, I, like uh, coronavirus and COVID is is obviously incredibly, incredibly unfortunate. And, and a lot of people are dealing with that every day, which is, is sad. And, and again, we uh, we talked earlier, I mean, from New York and you're from New York too. Obviously it hits closer to home a little bit for me. Uh, you have that, you have the oil price war. You have a lot of things that are that are difficult to deal with right now. And I think as a, as an investor or an end buyer, it's important to take a step back and say, today's news is, is bad. It's, it's really bad, but try not to get lost in the cycle about what's going on for, for the investments that you're trying to make. COVID and, and price wars are affecting what's going on today, but they don't really affect what's under the ground and what you're buying. So from that standpoint, I think it's important that yeah, investments into the mineral space right now, I think are, are attractive and, I think there's opportunities out there to, to still go get more. Yeah, I think it's been a four or five month period here where we've had some real bad news. Obviously, oil and gas had its struggles before this four month, four or five month period, but there's been cycles before and there, there are going to be cycles again. Uh, I, I think there's just a unique quality to a mineral ownership where you own it forever without really having to increase any CapEx ever other than writing your, your first check to buy the land that makes it a unique asset class that should really be looked at for people trying to generate yield and long-term ownership of assets with, without maintenance capital. Yeah. What, going back to some of the questions that investors might ask, um, in other calls I've had, they've said estimates are that the Permian Basin from a minerals perspective is 60 to 70% institutionally owned. So companies like yourselves and your peers own about 60, 70% of the minerals in the, in the Permian. I think that a question that a lot of investors will ask is, hey, we're interested in investing in Echo, but what kind of upside is still available? This looks interesting. It's a compelling story. There's a good, there's trends going upward in this space the last five, 10 years, but what's left? Um, do, do you get that question a lot? And, and how do you kind of respond to that with a ground game strategy? Gotcha. Yeah, that question to me is similar to the question we were getting early on in our fundraising is, is there enough left and is there enough to scale to create a meaningful investment? Uh, I think there's proof in the pudding as far as the number of minerals available. As far as an exact number goes, I don't know. I don't know on that, on that fact. You studied it earlier. I'm not sure. But I would feel pretty comfortable in saying there's multiple millions of acres available in very, very, very good places in the Midland and Delaware basins as far as what is available to buy out there with, with little development on it. I think the opportunity is is there to continue that ground game for for sure for future investment and and again depending on your life cycle of capital do you have um, a couple of years or or multiple years because if anybody's going to try and tell us or tell you or or me or anybody else what's going to happen in the oil and gas space in the next five years I think it's it's just made up uh, no one no one knows uh, no one would have guessed what's happening now and no one would have guessed what's happening when oil went over a hundred but there's too many variables uh, at play when it comes to geopolitics and supply demand balances and everything else that goes into an oil and gas price that, in our opinion, the ability to own minerals uh, with that ultimate option value for when, do, when things do get uh, a little uncomfortable or prices do spike uh, without having to pay to hold leases or pay to drill wells um, seems to me like a, a pretty attractive investment. And the second follow-up part to that question, and we're too early to see this fully play out, whereas the oil and gas industry, broadly speaking, we've seen M&A cycles and commodity price cycles play out for 
you know, 50 plus years. As the minerals in the good areas are, are largely acquired and they're not owned by individuals, then it comes down to a cost of capital or how well they were bought or the strategy for someone who can hold longer term and start to let the decades play out. Do the opportunities start to arise where, you know, certain corporations need to exit? They, they need to get money recycled back into private equity funds, for instance, or they bought incorrectly and have to monetize. And there's, there becomes some good value opportunities through, through corporate acquisitions, right? I, I still think a lot of folks that have acquired in the last five years, they, they say, well, I don't need to sell right now. We're not in a rush. We bought it 50 or $60 oil, whatever, but put another five to 10 years on that it might be different, right? And so where you said you might, you guys might start to look at evolving your acquisition strategy where there's still plenty of value to capture through ground game, I just kind of wonder and throw the idea out there that in five to 10 years, what the mineral space looks like, maybe the value opportunities are, are different as well. Yeah, like I said, we're, we're buying on the ground now for sure. And the distressed opportunities that's like any industry, right? Uh, I mean, in, in bad cycles, there's going to be times where people are selling distressed assets for, for great value. I don't, we don't have to look any further than just what's happening in the general EMP space right now with, with everything going on. Uh, and that should open up the possibility for bigger mineral companies and game users, um, whether they be public or large privates, to accumulate positions that would have been difficult to, to accumulate without, um, without some of these sellers having to come to market. So that's something that makes sense. I think you're right on that. Yeah, the, the only dynamic that makes minerals a, a bit unique versus you know, midstream or services or EMP that struggle through a downturn is minerals companies for the most part have zero debt. And if they do have any debt, it's, it's very, very minimal. So when you look at, you know, quote unquote, distressed mineral company, that there's a different definition there. And again, I think it's going to take time for those type of opportunities to really surface. But, you know, another kind of side comment, which is interesting, and this is pertains more to the smaller companies and potential buying opportunities for someone like yourself, right? Um, I was talking with a guy on the phone the other day, he's a Bakken player, and he said that he, he was monetizing some non-op interest at kind of a fire sale back in, in March, April, because he said to himself, you know what, I'll, I'll take a 50 to 70 cents on the dollar right off on this because I think it's, it's better to redeploy that money into minerals because of the value buying opportunities. And he found that that actually didn't play out, unfortunately. The prices haven't gone down that much. And this kind of goes on to one of my more final questions on the current environment. There's a bit of spread out there that's challenging. And it's not necessarily tied 100% to oil price. I think it's indirectly tied to oil price because of the uncertainty around drilling activity. And in, in a place like the Permian, the pricing on minerals, at least the expectations on the sell side, are predicated on getting paid for that development because that's what they've come to expect the last five, 10 years. What are your thoughts on, you know, how has it been going on the ground? And have you guys been able to get deals done? And Going forward, what do you, how, how do you foresee the bid ask spread narrowing so deal flow can, can continue again? So for us, we've, we've been buying for six plus years now. We've bought through a couple cycles, 2015, when prices were down in the 20s. Um, and obviously when prices have been back up and, and back to today, I mean, we bought over, we're looking at over 80,000 acres of ownership for, for Echo as a whole. We've got over 5,000 wells. And we've been in the Permian really substantially here for the last 
two ish years. Uh, we were in there earlier while we were mainly in Oklahoma, uh, just dabbling, but, but now mainly in the Permian for the last two years. So much to so where the, our portfolio is inching closer and closer to that 50 50 split. But uh, look, April was a, April was a, um, a month that I've never seen before. And I don't think a lot of other people have either. Uh, with oil prices going negative, the bid ask spreads and the market was confused. No one really knew what what was right and what was wrong. But but post that, um, May and June, at least at least from our standpoint, as we've been continuing to buy and the ground game is continuing to move, prices have come off where they were uh, prior to the Saudi Russia price war and and unfortunately the coronavirus. And there's bid ask spreads are starting to tighten and people are starting to transact. I think a lot of a lot of buyers may be out of the market a little bit because of some of the reasons we talked about previously on the episode. But some of the longer term focused buyers are, are like us. We've we've seen some opportunity to the transacting, and we've been buying uh, in a way that we feel really good about for the months of uh, May and June, and as we head into July. No, listen, that's great to hear. You guys are are getting stuff done. Yeah, I think what I was alluding to before is I asked uh, on a, another call the other day. I said oils at forty again. Deals have to start to get done. Bid spreads have to start to narrow. And just one of the comments was, there's still a lot of uncertainty on drilling activity. And so at least in the, in the Permian where undeveloped is getting paid more of a premium versus other basins, it's still, that's still been a challenge. Um, you're, that's definitely right. That's definitely right. You're on, you're on point there. And, and mineral owners don't want to hear that their acres aren't going to be developed. So you have to trust your underwriting and make sure that you know what you're buying and how long your durations are. But there are definitely uh, the, the mineral owners in Midland and, and Delaware are smart. They, uh, they've been playing this game for a long time. So you, you need to have some patience. And last question here, you know, going forward, what, what's the plans for Echo? You guys are Permian and Midcon. Is gas going to enter the picture? Do you look at Appalachia? Do you look at, at Haynesville? Or you you continuing forward with the same strategy uh, for the time being? Uh, for the time being, we're gonna we're gonna stick around in in uh, in the Permian. I think at the end of the day, that basin is is core to to the country and drilling activity when it returns or is going to be heavily focused there. So our our efforts are going to stick there for the time being. I do think you have a point with gas. It's a probably a whole different podcast and a whole different conversation as far as natural gas demand um, and and the uh, upside for natural gas prices into the next. 10, 15 years. But uh, for right now, we're going to be sticking in the Midland and in Delaware. Well, Brandon, thanks for the time, man. I, I enjoyed it. It's always fun to chat with you. Uh, I'll give you the floor to close out the episode. Any closing messages on behalf of Echo or to your peers, to the investment community uh, about your team or, or the, the space in general? I'll, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thanks, thanks for having me on, Tim. I enjoyed it. Um, it's, uh, it's nice to hop on and, and talk about the, the industry in and, and this way. I think you guys have done a fantastic job putting this stuff together. It's not an easy environment. And I think you, uh, you specifically and, and your group have done a great job pivoting to, to make this happen. So definitely appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you for having me on. I think uh, two parting thoughts for me is uh, on, on the mineral side of it. I think for anyone thinking about minerals out there, just remember, you sign, you sign the front of the check once and the back of the check's forever, and no one's going to argue about that. And on investing in general, I think eliminate the noise and trust your process. Everyone always has an opinion, but at the end of the day, uh, you're the one pulling the trigger, uh, and, and that's the most important thing. Awesome. Have a good long weekend, and we'll be in touch. Uh, enjoy the weekend as well, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Oil & Gas Council represents the largest network of senior oil and gas executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients in order to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Brandon, then please email me at tim.powell at oilcouncil.com or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.